Well, good morning, everyone, and thanks for joining us today at New City Church. Um, There's a story of two brothers who were terrible people. They cheated people. They swindled people. They disrespected people. They mistreated. They abused everyone who was in their path and everyone that had ever done business with. And so uh, eventually, uh, one of the brothers died, and the other brother was left to prepare his funeral. And so the surviving brothers meeting with the pastor whose church they're going to do the funeral at, he's the one that's going to do the eulogy, and he told the preacher, listen, If you will tell everybody that my brother was a saint, I will donate $10,000 to your church. To which the pastor's thinking, well, I know that's not true, but we've got a lot of building issues and things we need to fix. Like our church could really use the money. So he thinks about it for a second. He says, you know what? I'll do it. All I have to do is say he was a saint. The guy said, that's all you got to do. He says, all right. I'll do it. And so as the funeral comes, the pastor is giving the eulogy. And towards the end of the eulogy, as he finishes, he says this, as you know, this deceit was an awful man. He cheated people. He swindled people. He disrespected people. He mistreated people. He abused people. He lied to those he did business with. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. (laughs) Now, that story is funny because obviously this guy was not a saint. He was quite the opposite. Now, when we think of saint today, we think of someone who's a really good, holy person. Uh, Biblically speaking, in the New Testament, a saint is actually anyone who's a follower of Jesus. So if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you're actually a saint, right? But, But how we typically use the word, like we think someone who's really, really good. And we often think like, if you're a really good person, then God's gonna do really good things to you. Right? If you're an actual saint, if you do a lot of good stuff, then clearly God is going to be favorable or faithful to you. And, and today, as we uh, continue our time in the book of Genesis, the question we're looking at this morning is, who is God actually faithful towards? Who is God faithful towards? Is it just to the saints, to the really good people, to the people who maybe promise to do good things, to the people who have done good things? Who is he actually faithful toward? And, I, and when I say this question, I don't just mean like people who follow Jesus and gives grace. Like, yes, he gives salvation to anyone who would come to him. But like, when we're thinking in the back of our minds, like, but, but like, in, in order to get like blessings from God here in this life, right? If we want God to answer our prayers, who, who is the faithful people that God does that to? And how can we get God maybe to do what we want? Who is God faithful toward? That's the question this morning. And so uh, if you have a Bible, would you go ahead and turn to the end of Genesis chapter 11? We'll be primarily in Genesis 12 today, but we'll read the last few verses of Genesis chapter 11. If you were uh, with us last week, we looked at another very well-known story in the Bible, the, tar- the Tower of Babel. And we saw, again, the first 10 chapters of Genesis are a lot, a lot, a lot about uh, how human beings are morally destitute, how we've gone our own way, chosen our own path, uh, rebelled against God. And then in Genesis chapter 11, we read the well-known but confusing story of the Tower of Babel, and we saw that the author of Genesis here is trying to show us not only are people morally destitute, but we are theologically the same. By Genesis chapter 11, the people have so, are so far away from who God actually is, how God actually operates, that again, the, the, it seems to be the big sin of the Tower of, ba- of Babel is people creating God in their own image as opposed to who God actually is. And so because of that, God in chapter 12 is going to have to reveal himself in a new way because we are so far away from who he actually is. And so we'll pick up the story. Genesis chapter 11, after the Tower of Babel, again, there's a lot of genealogies in 10 10 and 11, and then it says this in verse 27. These are the family records of Terah. 
Terah fathered Abram. Now, this is Abram, who's also known as Abraham. So if you're familiar with that, we'll get into that. That's the same person. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans during his father Terah's lifetime. Abram and Nahor took wives. Abram's wife was named Sarai, and Nahor's wife was named Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Sarai, this is Abram's wife, was unable to conceive. She did not have a child. That's significant. Unable to conceive, she did not have a child. Verse 31, a Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, which is going to be Abram's nephew, Haran's, Haran's son, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they set out together from the Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years and died in Haran. So again, this is kind of the end of the Tower of Babel, introducing us to Abram and who he is. Again, 10 and 11 were the genealogy, and they also showed geographically where various people settled after the flood stories and as people began to repopulate. Now, uh, to be clear, we don't know exactly where in the genealogy of 10 and 11 the Tower of Babel actually took place, but it takes place somewhere in there. And now, we get the foundations for the rest of Scripture. Genesis 1 through 11 are packed with stories that are going to be replayed and repeated over and over again. We've already seen that happen a couple of times. We're going to see that the rest of the time of Genesis as well. And what we see is that again, these first 11 chapters are foundational for the rest of Scripture to show us how desperately you and I and all people uh, need God and we need Him to covenant with a people or at least with somebody to fix everything that has gone wrong because clearly uh, we can not get it right on our own. Again, especially in the light of the Tower of Babel, where the concept of God becomes uh, so distorted as it has throughout Genesis 11, that the only path for humanity to be righted with God is for God to reveal himself in a new way. We are so far gone who we actually, who, from, from who he actually is. And so uh, the Tower of Babel shows us how necessary this revelation is and then we're going to see God's revelation transpire in chapter 12 as he again is going to covenant with a new person and slowly reveal who he is and what he actually asks of us to do. And so chapter 12, verse 1, it says this, The Lord said to Abram, again, this is also Abraham, but the next couple of weeks you're going to hear Abram, but it's the same God. Go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. Uh, I, I, will be, I will bless those, uh, you will, and you will be a blessing. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Now, it is worth mentioning here that Abram's call in the beginning of chapter 12 could have and most likely did happen before his dad, Terah, died. So it happened somewhere at the end of Genesis chapter 11, but now it's just refocusing back on Abram's call. Uh, probably while they were still living in the land of Haran. Now, debates about exactly where these locations are are out there. It's not really relevant for the story, so we won't get into those. That doesn't really matter much to what the story is trying to communicate. I, I do think the original readers knew exactly where these places are, but we don't exactly know where they are. Now, that being said, I want to point out two things. So Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3, is a very well-known place of Scripture. God is, again, promising Abram something great. He's going to make him into a nation that somehow is going to bless the entire world. And so as we see, two things worth pointing out. Uh, and the first one I think is, is pretty significant, and that's this, that Abram has actually done nothing to deserve this. 
Abram has not done anything for God to choose him. Uh, it's actually, I mean, it doesn't say this in the text, but I mean, it's pretty much 100% certain uh, that Abram likely worshiped pagan gods because of course you would. That's what everybody else does. He's probably not, he might not necessarily be like a terribly morally evil person, but he hasn't done anything. At least the text gives us nothing to say like, he's this great guy and this is why God chooses him. We are giving nothing to indicate that he deserved to be chosen for this amazing blessing. And so again, this just reminds us that from the very beginning of Scripture, we've seen this a couple times already. We're going to continue to see this as we see people that God chooses to use. God always blesses people undeservedly and out of grace. He always blesses people undeservedly and out of grace. And so the first thing we come to this morning as we're looking at this question, who is God faithful toward? Well, the first thing we see is this, that God is faithful to the undeserving. He is faithful to the undeserving. He is faithful to people who have not proven always their worth or have not shown that they, that they deserve it. He is just faithful to them. And I think it's helpful for us to remember because for us to assume that we must do X, Y, Z first in order for God to love us or to be found on his good side is found nowhere in scripture. Yes, it is true that God blesses and he honors those who honor him and are faithful to him. But time and time again, we've already seen it happening here. We're gonna continue to see it happen throughout the Old Testament leading to Jesus, is that God calls and redeems and uses people who did not necessarily deserve it, but it was out of God's grace that he redeemed them. And so I think it's just helpful for us to remember in our own lives, when we think about the ways that we have fallen short, the ways that we have sinned, the ways that, that we have gone our own way, and we feel like, well, I don't deserve for God to love me or to care for me or to use me or to bestow his grace on me. You're right. And the same is true for me, but scripturally speaking, God is not faithful to people who proved it ahead of time. He is the one who is faithful to us and invites us in regardless of where we are coming from. Abram here is invited into this amazing, abundant, massive promise. And it's not because he has done anything to prove himself ahead of time, but simply because God is kind and God is gracious and God chooses to use Abram for this blessing. God is faithful to the undeserving. That's the first thing we see right away in this text. Now, uh, the second thing I want to point out here is that this promise to Abram to us sounds Sounds super exciting, right? I get to go to a new place and it's going to be awesome, a new land. And, and he's going to bless people who bless me and curse those who curse me. And it's going to get, make my name great. Like this sounds amazing to us because today in our current cultural moment, uh, traveling is the thing. Right? It's the cool thing to say, what do you want to do? I want to travel. I want to go to this place. Like it's, and I'm not knocking it. It's just, but, but that is for us, like the most coolest, amazing thing you can do today is travel to a bunch of places and post it on Instagram and look at where I'm going and all these experiences. And that's what we want to do. It's important for us to know that this would not at all have brought the same excitement to Abram. Okay, this, would, this is the exact opposite of what Abram would actually have wanted. So yes, God is promising something great through him, but actually Abram has to give up everything in the hope that what he is hearing is true. Again, Abram at this point has no idea where this is going to go. So he has to give up everything just hoping that whatever he is hearing from this God who he's never heard from before is telling him is true. Abram has to decide if he's going to leave his family, his land, his inheritance, his safety, the security of what he has already for the family that God promises. And remember, Sarai, his wife, has no children. So, so this, up to this point, it doesn't even seem like how is this actually going to happen. Remember, at this point, there is no credit cards. 
There's no phones. There's no internet. There's no FaceTime. He's leaving his family, or at least his, where he's coming from, likely to never see them again. Or if it does, it'll be very, very rare to travel into these distant lands. He has a massive traveling party. His family's quite wealthy. We'll see that. And so it's going to be seen as a threat anywhere he goes. He's not going to be like, you know, it's just like he has to give up everything for what he thinks sounds great, but does not know is actually going to happen. So he has to give everything up, leave everything. His wife has no, has no children at this point, and he has to decide whether to set aside everything he knows for everything God that is offering him is promising. Abraham here has to trust that God is going to deliver on what he is telling him. Because, again, Abram already right now has everything that he needs. All that he has is here. He's successful. He's wealthy. He has servants. Like, he has everything. Is he going to give that up for something that sounds great, but he has no idea if it actually is going to happen? That's what he's being told here. Essentially, he's being told to go and do something with zero idea of how it's actually going to work. And it's not like he's given any options here, right? It's not like, well, you can do X, Y, and Z, or you can do this, and you can bring this, but I want you to leave this. No, God is saying, you're going to have to leave everything, everything you know, to come and follow and trust me. And I think for us, um, so often following God includes bargaining with God. Like when we think God is asking us or leading us to do something, we begin to think, well, uh, can I make this exception or can I do this thing? Or maybe, um, God, I think this is from you. This sounds really good. This is honoring you. But like, give me a sign. Like, let me know absolutely for certain. Do something to show me like this is actually from you so that I know what I'm doing is actually going to pan out the way that you're saying it or the way that I think it's going to do that. Now, we just need to know when, when we do that with God, what we're really saying to God is, don't make me trust you. Um, prove it to me first. Right? When we want God to do all these signs and show us all these things before we're going to take a step, what we need to understand is that we're not actually trusting God. We want him to prove it to us so that we can do it knowing everything is going to work out. Now, hear me. Um, I get the desire to do that. I'm not even necessarily saying it's wrong. Like, I'm not necessarily saying it's wrong to ask God to confirm or to show you for sure something that you think he might be leading you towards. I just, I just need us to remember when you do that, when I do that, we need to know what we're really saying is, God, may, help me not have to trust you as much. Help me not really have to put all my trust here. Help me know for sure before I do this. I, this has happened many times in my life. I remember even in the planting of New City Church about seven years ago, Six, seven years ago, you know, we're trying to build a team and we're trying to raise money. And, you know, it's, there's a lot of anxiety and uncertainty, you know, when you plan a church. One of the things for me, like Christine and I, we had our first child. I was leaving a full-paying job with benefits and retirement and all these things. And I remember thinking, God, I will do whatever you ask. I will go to these meetings. I will do events where nobody shows up. I'll feel awkward and humiliated. If you can just, like, promise me that I'm going to have a paycheck, like, if I just know there's going to be money in the bank and that I'm not going to, like, quit my job for nothing, like, I'll do whatever you ask as long as the money is always going to be there, right? As long as I know I'll have a job, I'll do it. And what I was doing in that moment, I was really saying, like, God, I, I, I'll do this thing, but, like, prove it to me first. Like, make sure I know everything's going to be okay, and then I'll do what you'll ask me to do. And what this story is showing us, what Abraham is, try, is going to have to learn here, and many times, is that God's faithfulness isn't contingent on fill in the blank. 
His faithfulness isn't contingent on giving you a sign, on making sure all your ducks line up in a row, on answering all your questions. I'm not saying it's wrong to ask God or to, to get confirmation or to talk with friends and family about, oh, direction you're going. That's not wrong at all. But God is faithful regardless of whether or not we know what's going to happen or regardless of whether or not we even trust him. God is going to do what he is going to do, and he's just inviting us if we want to participate in his story. That's what God is asking Abram to do here. Now, Abram, we're going to see, is going to trust the Lord, but God's promises and his plans are not going to be stopped. The question for us is just, we, do we want to participate in them? And what's happening here is his faithfulness is not contingent on trying to answer all of Abram's questions and try to show him how it's going to work out. Abram's just going to have to trust him. And so if Abram does this, however, he will be rewarded. And not only him, but ultimately the rest of humanity somehow is going to be blessed from this man. That those who welcome this man and his offspring and his family, uh, those people will be blessed. and, And those who stand in the way of what God will do through this family will be cursed. And so here is what Abram did, verse 4. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot, which is his nephew, went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. So they're setting out for another land. Now, again, we don't know how much time transpired, what Abraham went through or wrestled with, but he does, to his credit, decide to trust in the Lord and follows him. And so as this story continues, again, we don't know how much he wrestled with it, but remember, you might know how the story ends. He has no idea. He has no idea at all how this will play out. Again, he's told you're going to be a great nation. He has no kids. He's 75 years old. We're going to find out his wife, Sarai, is 65. Uh, We're going to see, at least the time spans here, they're still living a little bit older than what we might do today. And so maybe there's still time for them, but they're still probably on the older, older side. And certainly they've had no kids yet. And so he has no idea how this is going to happen, but he trusts. And so again, the second part of verse 5, it says this, When they left through the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land up to the site of Shechem at the oak of Morah. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. So this is written later on, saying the Canaanites are in the land that Abram is going to to move to. Uh, Verse 7, The Lord appeared to Abram, so this is the second time, and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So this land of Canaan where they are traveling to. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So Abram goes to the land of Canaan, the same land that the Israelites are journeying towards and where they are going to live after the time of the Exodus, but that the Canaanites possessed before Israel returned there after Egypt. So right now it's the Canaanites who are living there. You know, we're going to see the story. Abram's going to have kids. Eventually they're going to move to Egypt. They're going to grow big in number and come back to the land of Canaan. Uh, God in some way, again, we're not sure how this looked or what actually happened. He appears to Abram again. He says, I'll give this land to your offspring. Sounds great. He has no kids. So that's kind of like, how's that going to happen? And then Abram responds and worship to the Lord. And then this text will tell us a few other places in the next verses of uh, some of the other places in the land of Canaan that they traveled to. And then it says this in verse 10. They're in the land of Canaan. They're traveling around. It says this in verse 10. There was a famine in the land. Again, what I want us to do is get us in the mind of these biblical characters. It's so easy for us to read these stories and it's really quick for us and not really understand the emotional turmoil and difficulty and anxiety they would feel at different parts. There's a famine. So let's just be, let's, let's, we're, just imagine you're Abram right now for a second. You've left everything you've known. 
You have no kids, even though you're promised something amazing. And now you go to the land that the Lord has shown you, and there's a famine, which means you cannot survive or you do not know how to survive. Now, for us, we don't really know what famines are like living in the United States. But think about this. Inflation is super high. Mortgage rates are 20%. Gas is $6 a gallon. The Tar Heels win the national championship, right? You don't want to live there, right? It is a terrible place to be. And again, he also still has no kids. He's left everything that he's known, and he's here thinking, I'm going to die. I gave up everything for this. Again, remember, Abram has no idea how this story is going to end. And you have to imagine, if you are Abram, that this is not how you assumed it was going to go down. Not at all how you thought this was going to go down. He probably expected amazing things. Maybe he thought some difficulties here and there, but like to give up everything, to move to this area, to have this traveling party that you can no longer feed or afford to live there, like you would be questioning a lot of things. You'd be really, you'd be really like upset, right? In fact, you've probably done this maybe to a lesser scale in your life, right? You've ever taken a risk and things didn't go as you expected and then you get frustrated and angry and you can't believe like this is where Abram is, he does something super faithful, and then he gets left here to die? Like, how in the world is that fair? Again, I think all of us, all of us have been there. Even if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you've probably been there. But God, if you're there, if you're real, will you do this thing? I'll try. And then nothing it doesn't go the way you think, and you're frustrated. Right? We know what it's like to feel like God is leading us into something, or someone tells us something good is going to happen to us if we make a wise decision or if we do X, Y, and Z. And so we started down a path, assuming, uh, assuming what the path is going to look like for us to get where we're going, but then it doesn't work out, and things don't go the way we want them to go. And so what do we often do in those situations? We try to fix it. We try to call an audible. We think, well, if this isn't going the way that it's supposed to be going, maybe I need to do something different to get the result that I desire. And so what we're going to see here is that this is what Abram's going to do. He's been faithful. He goes to this land. It's a famine. So clearly this is not God's will or he misheard him. And so what is he going to do? Well, it says this in verse 10. Again, we'll read it. There is a famine in the land. So here's his solution. Abram went down to Egypt to stay there for a while because the famine in the land was severe. So Abram leaves the land that God has shown him, goes down to Egypt. Now, this is helpful to know. Much of the Middle East is very rain dependent uh, for crops and, and produce to survive. The Nile, however, in the Egyptian area, the Nile will flood every year. So they're a little, it's a little bit more resistant to drought than the other parts of the Middle East. And so they go down there. They can weather the droughts better. Abram goes down there. But there's a problem. Again, if you read and reread scripture, most of the time in the Old Testament, when somebody goes down to Egypt, something bad happens. So, so you, this is like a red flag for us. So something good probably isn't going to happen if he's going down to Egypt. Just like as we talked about a couple, couple times already, when they go east, when somebody goes east, typically in the Old Testament, something bad's about to happen. When you go to Egypt, something bad's about to happen. So here's what happens. Verse 11. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, look, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. They will kill me, but let you live. Please say you are my sister so that it will go well for me because of you and my life will be spared on your account. Verse 14, when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh. So the woman was taken to Pharaoh's household. He treated Abram well because of her 
And Abram acquired flocks and herds, male and female donkeys, male and female slaves, and camels. Now, you read this and you're like, <laughs> what? <laughs> like, what? A couple of things. One, why would Abram do this? Two, this is the guy that God is promising to deliver us to give his blessings to the whole earth for? This guy? Uh, three, Abram is a little over 75 years old. We're going to find out that his wife, Sarah, is about 10 years younger. So why would, why would Pharaoh want an elder man's wife to take as his wife? And four, why is that even a thing? Like, why would he give her away? So I just, really quickly, I want to answer maybe some questions that you might be thinking. Um, here it is very, one of the hard things when you read these stories in the Old Testament is most of the time, uh, the authors do not comment on the actions of people. It doesn't say they're right or wrong. It just says, here's what happens. And so you're left to wonder, like, was, like, is God okay with this? Is this what he's supposed to do? Now, what happens is, after they make a decision, how the decision plays out tells the reader, oh, this was not good. That's what's supposed to happen. However, Abram gets blessed. So what are we supposed to do with this? It's very clear here that Abram is operating out of fear and not faith. He devises a plan by which he will be accepted in, in Egypt. Now, here's why. He, he likely has a very large traveling party. We're going to see this later. There's a lot of people and part of his traveling party. And so he would likely have been noticed. You don't have like over 300 men alone in your like big caravan. and not. I mean, that's like a kingdom in, in a lot of these places. And so he undoubtedly would have been noticed coming into this land. Pharaoh's officials, officials would have commented on this and they would have gone and told Pharaoh about it, even though God said he would bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. Again, Abraham here is afraid. So he devises a plan of which he will not be killed. Now, why would Abram do this? Here's my answer. I don't know. Okay, that's my unsatisfying answer here. Why exactly would he do this? Uh, there's a lot of debates on why you would do this and what he's trying to accomplish, but here's what we do know. Uh, other than he's not trying to be killed. Now, now why, how, how would giving uh, his wife, now his sister, keep him from being killed? Well, um, ancient Israel would say this. They would have understood the dynamics at play much better than we would in our ancient culture. Like today, you don't like travel the world and be like, as you enter the country and if you're married, and like, here's my wife. Like that's not something we do, right? Why would they do it here? Now, I'm not justifying at all Abram's actions. We are meant to be seeing them as unfaithful. As the story unfolds, you are meant to be seeing like he did not trust God. He should not have done this. Um, it's just harder for us to exactly, to exactly decipher why this was a thing. Well, again, part of the reason likely, if you've been with us, we've talked about this idea of sexual dominance, okay? Um, sexual dominance. So, so often what would happen is if she is the most prominent member of the traveling party, she probably was respected. People listened to her. By taking the most prominent woman of the nation, of the traveling party or whatever, you would display, I'm in control. And so clearly this would have been a, an act on Pharaoh or at least Abram, Abram's part to defer to say, hey, listen, I'm in your land. I'm not here to fight you. You can take whatever you want. Also for us, a question you might have is beauty. If she's 65 years old, how in the world would she be quote unquote beautiful? Again, for us, I say that because for us, what do we think? Young, thin, and no wrinkles. That's how we describe beauty, beauty today. All right? That's how, that's how, I mean, that's what's on the advertisement. That's what we say. However, this is not necessarily what they would have described as beauty. In fact, even throughout human history, right? If you look at art, like, what is beauty has often been changed. Now, while there are examples today of people who are older, who are still quite physically attractive, it's likely more than just physical attraction going on here. 
Uh, she, uh, she, and again, they also live longer, so maybe there is like a physical beauty there as well. But she probably was, again, the, the most prominent person in that party. So she was be the one, at least Abram assumes, that he has to give up in order to live in the land. So there's likely power dynamics at play. Uh, she was probably seen as striking from her dignity and her continence, maybe even her wisdom. There could have been many reasons why taking her would be seen as advantageous and was a way for Abram to show that he is not the one with the power. That is basically probably why he would do something like this. And so he gives her over to Pharaoh, and then he is treated well for doing something terrible. To be clear, uh, we don't know yet if she's sexually violated or not, or not yet, or, or when that's going to happen, or if she's actually going to marry him, how long that's going to take. Um, but we do know he, he takes Pharaoh, or he takes Abram's wife to, to be his wife, and then he gets blessed. But then this happens, verse 17. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his household with severe plagues because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So, Abram, so Pharaoh sent to Abram and said, why have you done this to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Verse 19, why did you say she's my sister so that I took her as my wife? Now here is your wife, take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave, uh, gave his men orders about him and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So uh, after all this takes place, the Lord essentially curses Pharaoh's household. Somehow he finds out that Sarah was actually Abram's wife. Perhaps she told him, we're not exactly sure. They probably figure as soon as she came in, they came into here, all these things started going bad. And so they somehow link it to Sarai. And so they, they, they give her back to Abraham and they tell him to leave. Um, they release her. They tell him to leave, uh, which, is, which by the way, this is a prefiguring of the Exodus story later. When the Israelites are leaving in Egypt, they're being mistreated by the Pharaoh and God punishes Pharaoh for the mistreatment of Abraham's descendants. That's the fulfillment of this promise. But yet, what's interesting to point out is that in this story, Pharaoh has technically not done anything wrong. Now, yes, he, might, he probably had multiple wives. Yes, like we would say it's incorrect how he's treating this woman and what's going on here. But like culturally, from an ancient perspective, you take God out of it. Again, nobody's following God at this point except Abram is finally learning about him. Like culturally, nobody would have blamed Pharaoh for what he did. Pharaoh, he was told it was Abram's wife. We have no idea how Pharaoh would have responded if Abram has said it was my wife and not my sister. Abram is the one in this story who is clearly in the wrong. And the only reason they're in this here is because Abram chose not to believe God in the first place. There's a famine. He's afraid. He goes down to Egypt. He gives his wife Sarai so they would accept him there. He's got it wrong. Abram has come to believe that God's plan was incorrect or maybe he heard it wrong. And so he was trying to fix it. There's no food, right? We, we can't survive in Canaan. I'll fix it. I'm not sure how they'll accept me uh, in Egypt. And so here's my plan. I'm going to fix it so that we can stay and survive, or at least so I can stay and survive. Again, clearly God was wrong or I misheard him because obviously this should not have happened. We should not have been here in the first place. In fact, he might have been thinking, this ain't even my fault. This is on God. And I just, I think for us, if we're being honest, often our frustration and our discouragement in life, particularly with God, is because we assumed a certain path from A to B that God did not say. We assume, hey, if God is asking me to do this or leading me to do this, then this is exactly what it's going to look like. And then we get frustrated because it does not turn out how we assumed it was turned out, going to turn out, even though God didn't say how it was actually going to turn out. Again, it's helpful for us to remember this truth, that God is faithful to his promises, not our expectations. 
He is faithful to what he has promised to do, not to how we assume it's going to be fulfilled or how we assume the road or the journey is going to look like in order to get there. God promised Abram to keep and redeem him and his family, which is going to turn out into be the people of Israel, even though, again, throughout the Old Testament, they blow it time and time again, so that he could ultimately redeem all people who turn to, Je- to, turn to the Lord through Jesus. Our tension, Abraham's tension, even in our life, is not that God does not do what he says, but it's that he often doesn't do it how we assume. That's the tension for us. But here's the good news, okay? Here's the good news. Even when we make faulty assumptions, even when we get upset with God for not doing something he never actually promised to do, here's what we need to remember, and here's what this story shows us. Because God is not going to give up on Abram here. The first story we get of Abram, Abram trusting the Lord, is him blowing it. Leaving Canaan and giving his wife up. He blows it. But God is not done with him. Again, the question for us this morning was this. Who is God faithful toward? Here's what this story shows us. That God is faithful to unfaithful people. God is faithful to unfaithful people. Again, Abram, called by God. The first major story we get after he trusts and follows the Lord, he goes to Egypt because there's a famine because he doesn't trust that God can provide. And then he goes to Egypt and he gives his wife up Sarai because he's afraid that he's going to be killed. He doesn't trust that God will protect him, even though God said that he would. God promises to make Abram's name great and to make him a blessing to the whole world, which we know will lead to God's people, which were the Israelites, from which the Savior of the world, Jesus, would come. And how does he do that? Through the Abra- through the, uh, he does this through Abraham, offering him a blessing to be, to be a blessing to all the families of earth. Now, Abraham blows it here. But God does not withhold his blessing. He does not give up on him right away. But he continues faithfully walking with Abraham because it's not about Abram to begin with. It's about God, who he is, and his love. And it's through this, through the story, and through ultimately the Savior Jesus, that why God chooses Abram. It's not because Abram's often. It's not because Abram deserved it. It's because God said, I'm going to reveal myself and make it possible for sinful and broken people to experience the grace of God to show us whose God's character is so that we might know who God is. Now, to be fair, Abram's going to have some highlight moments of faithfulness, but he's also going to have some other low-light moments of unfaithfulness as well. And so remember, this story, the story of Abram, is coming on the heels of the Tower of Babel, where the biggest problem in Genesis chapter 11 was that people had made God in their own image. And as we saw last week, whenever you and I make God in our image, it is always a lesser God. It is always a worse God than who he actually is. As if God needs us, as if God can be bought from us. The reality, what we see here, what we see happening in all of Scripture is that we need Him, that God provides, that He's the one who does it, and we just accept. God does not give up on His promises, on His people, or on you. The good news of the gospel of Jesus is that Jesus came to redeem the sinners, the broken, those far from God, those who feel like they did not deserve it. God is faithful to people who have not earned it, who have said, even I'm going to follow you, even like Abram, I may follow Jesus here this morning, say, God, I'm going to follow you in my life, I'm going to do all these things for you, and yet we find ourselves time and time again blowing it and doing the thing we said we wouldn't do. And we think, God, are you done with me? God, do you even care about me anymore? 
And all throughout scripture, we see that God is faithful continually to unfaithful people, culminating in Jesus. God made flesh among us who lived a life we could not live, died the death that we should have died to show us that it's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about trying really hard. It's about knowing that Jesus, that God through Jesus is the one who's done everything so that we can experience the grace and mercy of him. What we'll see as we continue to read about Abram is that he is just yet another trophy of God's grace. And the same can be true for you. Listen, if you do not yet know Jesus here this morning or if you're watching online, the same is true for you. That God calls people, that he brings people in who do not deserve it, and that he is faithful to people who promise great things for him and then blow it anyway. And so if you're here this morning and maybe you're like, man, I've made these decisions this week or this month or this year and I've done some terrible things. Like maybe maybe I shouldn't even be here. Like I'm surprised like lighting didn't strike me as I was walking in. Like it was really sunny this weekend and it was really cloudy on the way to church. I'm like, those clouds might be for me. Like God might be like, I'm coming to get you, right? What was it? Let's can be further from the truth that God sent Jesus not because we earned it or deserved it, but because, because again, like we see in Genesis over and over again, we continually blow it and God does not turn us back. We continually choose to go our own way and God redeems and says, I am here. That Jesus came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. That this was promised all the way back through Abram to bless the entire nation of all the world, not because of us because of his love for us.